If you will turn back with me to James chapter 4, verses 13, um, that is our text for today. And as we turn there, I want us to ponder the question, which is more important, perception or reality? As I was thinking about this question this week, I came across Nicolaus Copernicus, the 16th century mathematician and astronomer. Because for much of history, people operated with the assumption of, oh yeah, Earth is the center of the universe. Makes sense. Um, And this view was known as geocentrism. And it wasn't until Copernicus's model of heliocentrism which was published in 1543, that society was officially exposed to the factual evidence that the sun was the center of our solar system and that all the planets revolved around it. For thousands of years, people thought one thing, that the earth was the center of everything, yet the reality was that it was the sun. The truth was one thing, but the perception was another So which one is greater, truth or perception? It's an exceptionally important question for us to ask ourselves because it is directly relevant for us at this very moment within this text today. For we often, whether knowingly or unknowingly, fall into the perception that we are at the center of the universe, that everything revolves around us. That whatever plans we make, whatever it is that we want, whatever our goals are, that is what is of the greatest importance. We are me-centric. But the reality is that it's not about, about us at all. The reality is that we all revolve around someone far, far greater than ourselves, which is the Lord. So are we prone to having a me-centric mindset in which we are pridefully at the center of our own universes, or do we embrace the truth of the situation and live a life with Christ at the center? Who is the center of our lives? That is what James is challenging us today with our text. What do our lives revolve around? Especially when it comes down to our time and our money. Now, James 4, 13 through 16 states this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. Now, James is not saying that making plans in and of themselves is inherently wrong. In fact, Scripture actually teaches us in several parts that it is good to make plans, like such as Proverbs 21.5, which tells us the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So I don't think James would see us preparing for college or looking for potential jobs or getting ready for retirement and say, whoa, whoa, now you stop that, you arrogant fool. Like, I don't don't think that's what he's saying at all. Because the issue is not that we look ahead, but rather how we are looking ahead. 
James is saying that if we are making plans with a me-centric mindset, it is evil and arrogance. And in contrast, looking at verse 15, the correct way we are to make plans is with a God-centered mindset, where we fully acknowledge the reality that God is the sovereign one here, not us. And this is not the first time we see this truth in Scripture. Proverbs is littered, absolutely littered with this. So Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 16.3, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Proverbs 69, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You get the idea. There's one way of planning that is focused on earthly wisdom, and there's another way that is based on heavenly wisdom. The Lord is the center, not us, and our plans should reflect that. Now, our plans, our calendars and schedules, they, how we spend our time communicates a lot about us, actually. If you say, for example, I like running or I am a runner, the evidence of that would be found in your schedule. Maybe you get up early every morning and go for a jog or you're part of the track or cross-country team, what have you. Like the, the fact that you make time for it reveals that it's actually important to you. If any of us say, I'm a runner and we never run or make the time for it, I think others are rightfully able to question us, don't you think? So when we say, I am a Christian, what should our calendars look like? If we say we are a Christian, could others look at our calendars and our priorities in life and affirm that? Or could they rightfully question it? We're not talking about simply going to church every Sunday because we can come to church every week and then live for ourselves the minute we walk out that door. Rather, James is talking about having a heart posture that moves away from making plans for our own gain to that of making plans in submission to the Lord's authority. In verse 13, James begins talking by painting this image of this ancient Middle Eastern merchant who is making plans. And, and what, what is this merchant's end goal? To make a profit to make as much money as they can. So what we're dealing with here in this passage is the pursuit of worldly wealth and it being the sole focus of one's life. And James asks, what is your life? What is that? What is it? The answer, a mere mist and nothing more. Now, I grew up in Michigan and during the seasons where it took a little while for the sun to rise, uh, there was sometimes a super dense fog that would just lay over thickly over all of our towns. And the school systems would issue what they called a two-hour delay, in which they would just hold off for two hours and then send the buses and then bring us to school then. And the reasons for them doing this is because at the present time, it's just too dangerous to be on the roads. It's just it's risky. It's dangerous to drive in. But they knew, they knew the reality of the situation that as soon as the sun rose, all that mist, all that fog, gone in an instant. 
vanished. James is saying that is the life of the one who makes plans for the sake of themselves and making a profit. And this idea of living for a profit can extend beyond just money here. I want us to understand that. Perhaps the profit that we're working for is that extravagant, extravagant vacation or that piece of property and dream home or that dream job or those name brand items or luxury cars or perhaps the person of our dreams. We make our plans to make us feel happier, more comfortable, and more in control. But when we do this, what is our life? It is a mist. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not inherently wrong to enjoy financial security, relationships, leisure, or stuff. For God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift, has given us these things on earth to enjoy. But it can become sinful when we begin living for these things. Enjoying something and living for it are completely different things. One of my students, Noah Burns, and I studied through Judges 18 recently, which tells about a man named Micah who devoted his whole life to worshiping a false idol made out of silver. He took this beautiful, precious metal, something that God gave to enjoy and use, and he shaped it into an item of worship. And one day men came and took his idol and his priest. And do you know what Micah said while they were marching off with the thing he built his life around? He said, he said this, What have I left? What have I left? What remains of my life if you take this? This points to the reality of the fact that what we have today may be gone tomorrow. And it's not worth building our lives around these things that can vanish in an instant like fog. We will always find ourselves being in the likeness of the things we worship. The question is, do we want to be in the likeness of these momentary earthly things and be as they are, a mere vapor? Or do we desire something everlasting and never fading? If the things we desire most in this world, the things we pursue and plan our lives around, if they are removed, what do we have left? But if we have Christ as the center of our lives, that is something that can never be taken away or faded. Edward Mote said it best in his hymnal in 1834. It's on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All, all other ground is sinking sand. But not only is being me-centric like a vapor, but also deeply, deeply arrogant. Life is built around pure assumptions, the Lord is the only one truly in control, and it is arrogant to think otherwise. As James in Proverbs 27 states, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. For those of you who have experienced 
sudden and unexpected loss in your life, you understand this all too well. As days come and go, we simply assume we have more days ahead of us and that our plans will come to pass and our stuff will remain. But the reality is that we do not actually know. It is nothing more than arrogance. One preacher puts it this way. If we are Christians, we know where we'll be in a million years. We know that. But we don't know where we'll be tomorrow. Living for ourselves and for tomorrow is living for something that is not guaranteed. Now, I came across an article that was written about a month ago, and it says this. After 18 months of building, Lisa and Steve Hollett were nearly ready to move into their dream home in Dayton, Montana. It had taken their life savings to build the four-bedroom cabin set on a hill above Flathead Lake. It took one wildfire to burn it to the ground in minutes. The Elmo II fire had taken 21,349 acres since July 29, and this is in 2022, just recently, leaving behind a path of devastation. Last week, 150 residences were evacuated and four primary residences are confirmed to have burned down. On August 1st, multiple people told the Holets that the way the fire was burning, it wouldn't reach their house. They left to run some errands, and on their way back, the couple saw black smoke rising from the area of their property. The two raced to their house. The sheriff followed them and told them that they had five minutes before they needed to leave again. With the help of the sheriff, the Holet said they grabbed little more than their dogs, their passports, Lisa's work computer, and a handful of clothing from a shed and the camper they were living in while the house was being built. Both the camper and the shed were also destroyed. Ten minutes after they left, Lisa said, they watched as their house went up in flames. Life savings, everything they'd been working for, all their plans turned to ash in minutes. We arrogantly think we are in control, but we factually do not know what is coming tomorrow. And the funny thing is, is that we, we often admire those like the, the Holets in this story. They, they worked hard. They're self-sufficient. They're go-getters. They have spent their entire lives working and ob- obtaining all these like earthly desires, all their earthly dreams. They did it. They made it, we think to ourselves. American dream. I want to be just like them. They have the car, the money, the home, the relationship, the job, the stuff. They won at life, quite frankly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, everything they invested in and built was gone in mere moments. I just want to apologize to to Lisa and Steve. I'm I'm just using you as an example for the sake of the kingdom, so please please don't be mad. Couldn't contact you to ask your permission. Uh, You very well could be amazing selfless people, so please forgive me if you actually ever end up listening to this somehow. Um, But but once again, it it is not inherently bad to save up and buy land and build a house like no that, those are good things but it's all about heart posture and that is what and if that is what we are primarily living for but how often do we see these people and see their lives and kind of begin to drift 
how often do we slide into the temptation of imitating those who live for the world? After all, they have physical and tangible things. We can see it. We can touch it. While in the meantime, we can be tempted to look at our faith and we can feel a bit underwhelmed and discontent a little bit. I reconciled years ago that by choosing to go into ministry that I was not going to have a surplus of money. <laughs> uh, and there are definitely times when I look at others my age who are homeowners and have a good high-paying job, and I kind of become, if I'm being honest, I come, become envious of them a little bit. They have seemingly been cruising through life while I'm stuck in a rundown brick oven apartment over there, <laughs> which it's a blessing. Riley Building's a blessing. Um, but Christians... We live by faith and not by sight. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. To the world, this faith of ours in the unseen appears to be foolishness. There have been times where people, unbelievers, who have looked at my choices and what I invest my time and money into, and they're baffled. And sometimes in those moments, I, I do feel a, a bit sheepish in that. I'm like, oh, okay. But, but Paul writes that the gospel of Christ appears as complete folly to those who are of the world. They see us and deduce that our lives are, are being wasted. Why live for what is unseen when we could have all this stuff? And sometimes, if we're real with ourselves, we fall into this perception and live that way. And this is where double-mindedness comes in. We want to pursue God and grow in our faith. Yes, that's true, but at the same time, this stuff over here looks pretty darn good. It's so easy for us to covet these worldly treasures and live for them. And our culture tries its best to make these things so appetizing and desirable as well, with the countless ads and promotions that we're surrounded with. And we want these tangible things. We, we don't want to look foolish in the eyes of others. We want to look successful. But the reality is that these things and those who live for them can be gone in an instant. So what ought we to do then? James tells us in verse 15 that rather we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But James is not merely saying that plugging Lord willing onto everything we say is sufficient. And we have a tendency to do that all, all the time. But rather, James is pushing us to move forward and move away from me and to focus on he to shift our faulty and arrogant perceptions to instead operating with a heart devoted to God's will that submits to him and his authority. James is not talking about a verbal statement. He is talking about an internal lifestyle. And we see this perfectly demonstrated within Jesus himself. Jesus never lived for material gain but only for God's kingdom. And he always 
humbly submitted and currently submits to, to the Lord's will, as we ultimately see in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He obeyed his father to the point of death on a cross. Jesus not only knew the Lord's will, but he did the Lord's will. And as imitators of Christ, Christians, we should be doing and striving to do the same thing. We are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And chapter 4 concludes with this profound, gut-wrenching statement that says, So for whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In other words, if we know God's will and know that he is leading us to do one thing or calls us to one thing and we consciously do another or refrain from doing anything at all, that is sin. James is talking to Christians here. He's talking to us. We, we know the right thing to do. We know what we should be living for and what we should be doing. And James cuts deeply and says that passively ignoring the Lord's sovereignty and will in our lives is sin. And this is seen in, in Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents that was read earlier today. There was the one servant who when he got his talent, he buried it deep and just waited for the master to return and passively sat around, wasted time, didn't do anything with it. But when his master returned, the master rebuked him, took away his talent, and gave them to those who used their gift and time wisely and for him. This servant knew the right thing to do and failed to do it. He was given a treasure, a gift by his master. He didn't use it, and it was sin. Sins of omission are a real thing, everyone. Sin is not only manifested in what we do, but also in what we do not do. We know that we should be doing God's will. Are we doing it? Or are we still chasing our own misty arrogance? James then shifts his attention here. So throughout his letter, he has been talking to, directly to the believers and instructing them on faithful living. But in chapter 5, he turns to the unbelieving rich and tells them in James 5, verses 1 through 6, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So the clear question that we should be asking is, why would James write about the, this condemnation of these unbelieving rich oppressing the Christians? It is not as if these people are receiving this letter and reading it themselves or sitting within the church audiences in taking the word. 
So, so why talk about this? Why would James bring this up? Well, Sam Alberry, in his commentary, points out that this was a common rhetorical device that was used all throughout the Old Testament. Israel, as we remember, was frequently given prophecies that, directed, that were directed to the surrounding nations. So now, it was not as if Isaiah was going to embark on a preaching tour of all these, these countries and actually deliver these messages of condemnation to them. Rather, the point was that God's people needed to know what God thought of those people. And doing so would enable the Israelites to know how to think about themselves. Hearing these prophecies would show them why they were neither to fear nor copy those around them. James is doing the same thing here. He describes these rich as being hoarders of their wealth, unjust and even murderous in their interactions with their labors and self-indulgence on luxuries. They have lived their lives perceiving themselves at the center of the universe and have completely rejected fully the truth of Christ. All of their stored up earthly treasures, we read, have perished, gone like the vapor that they are. All of the injustices that they have committed have been seen and heard by the Lord who will, he will carry out justice. And all of their luxurious self-indulgence, James says, has fattened them on the day of slaughter. Or as Paul would say, they have been storing up wrath for themselves for the day of judgment. Now let's take a moment to, to reflect a bit more on James' imagery of the rich fattening themselves for slaughter. So picture, picture two pastures. One, one is lush and green and just absolutely gorgeous, and one is nearly barren. You hand, you, so the cows that are in the lush pasture are fat and happy. They're doing great. While the cows in the other pasture only have the bare necessities to survive, but they're surviving. They're getting through. The lowly cows look upon the fat and happy ones, and they covet what they have. But then one day, here comes the farmer to collect the fattened cows and slay them. This is when the lowly cows realized that the fat cows were indulging to their own condemnation. Now that the lowly cows know what partaking of the lush pasture actually entails, do you think that they will still be envious of those fat cows? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, they would not. For their perception has given away to reality. The rich, the powerful, the oppressive, they may look happy now, but when the end comes, all that they will have is death. And that is because a life that is dedicated to this world is a life that will not inherit the next. And verse 6 tells us exactly why that is. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, James may be referring to Christians in general here, but the language seems to point to Jesus himself the only truly righteous person to ever live. James is pointing out how those who live for themselves and their profit have a tendency to fully reject the gospel. 
that for the rich, it's like a camel trying to go through an eye of a needle. It's easier for it to go through eye of a needle than for them to be saved. They deny the Savior for they do not see the need to be saved. After all, they have everything they ever wanted. What need do they have of, of Jesus? The story of the rich young ruler is actually a great example of this. This young man came to Jesus asking how to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, you just got to keep my commandments. He responds, oh, great. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> I've, done, I've kept all of them. And Jesus states, you still lack one thing. Go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the man walks away sorrowful. And why is that? It's because he had great possessions. He has lived his life doing all the right Christian things, but when it came to his wealth, he simply couldn't give it up. For money was his true master. He, he didn't want to live for Christ. He wanted to live for himself. Those who live for the sake of their earthly profit reject the Savior, which is why they will not inherit eternal life. John 3, 16 and 18 outlines this process perfectly. You know, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But those who don't, they are condemned. That is what's being set up. And it's saying that these people who have embraced their earthly prophet have not put their faith in Christ for they don't see a need or purpose to and therefore they are not going to inherit what is to come. Instead, they are finding themselves under judgment. And that is the choice we're all met with. We can either believe in him and be saved or reject him and fall under that same condemnation, that same judgment. And James is saying in verse 6 that these, that these people have murdered Christ in their hearts and so they shall not have the kingdom. Those who live a life that is dedicated to this world will not inherit the kingdom of God for they have not put their faith in Christ but in themselves and in their stuff. James works through this in, in verses 1 through 6 to, to remind Christians, because that's who this letter is written to, that this is what the world is actually working towards. It's working towards condemnation. And this reminds us that we shouldn't be covetous of them, that we should not be imitating them and arrogantly planning or living our lives around these material things. No, for those who live for Christ, oh, they have such a far greater reward awaiting them than those who have rejected him. We receive, we receive life. We receive life. You know, we see the Christians struggling with, with this temptation of kind of wanting what the world has. In chapter 2, when they are showing partiality to the rich, the very ones who are persecuting them. But James is showing them and showing us that since we have been justified by Christ through his blood because of his grace that we have a great and wonderful hope to look forward to. So take heart, Christians. Even when we see, even when the world sees us living by faith, living for what is unseen, and we are mocked or looked down upon and makes us feel or try to feel insufficient, like we don't have anything, and call us, call us foolish, and they tempt us to trust in temporal things, 
remain steadfast under these trials. For when we were made steadfast, we shall receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You know, can mock us for our faith, can look down upon our faith. You can think we're foolish for believing such things and putting our trust in it. But man, the hope we have is real. Ah, and is beautiful. You can, you can have the world. You can have all of it. Just give me Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for, for the reward that you gift us when we put our faith in you. I pray for anyone here who has not put their faith in you, that they would see the hope that we are working towards, that they see the hope that we have, and that they see the joy that you give us even in this messed up world. Lord, I ask that everyone here who does not know you or love you, that they would come to, that they would accept you into their hearts and into their lives and live for you and receive eternal life. Amen.